Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, Queen's University's Eugene Lang asks, is Canada back on the world stage or irrelevant? Cardiff's economist Renza Nauda looks at the Fed's daycare plan and says it leaves out the families who need it most. And SFU marine ecology professor Isabel Cote talks about Salty Science, a project which will see her and three other women row across the Atlantic. So, let's get started. A piece at theconversation.com caught our attention the other day. The title of the piece is, Is Canada Back on the World Stage? or irrelevant. The author of said piece, Professor Eugene Lang from the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University in Ontario, is joining us this morning to, well, talk more about his piece at theconversation.com. Professor Lang, Eugene, good morning, sir, and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's very good to have you with us. And uh, let me just quote very briefly from the piece that you wrote. Canada is back, Justin Trudeau proclaimed triumphantly just after being elected PM back in 2015. The insinuation being Stephen Harper, his predecessor, had withdrawn Canada from its traditional role in the world. And the Liberals would restore our rightful place of leadership in the global firmament. So that was the setup. Basically, after seven years in office, it's time to assess the degree to which that rhetoric has been matched with the action. Very interesting that we have this conversation this morning, Eugene, as a a, a fresh uh, piece appears in the National Post written by retired General Michael Mezenov entitled, Once Again, Mm -hmm. Canada Fails on the World Stage. This referring specifically to our DART disaster assistance response team, which should be in Syria and isn't. But again, another example, perhaps, of what at least some see as not living up up to the rhetoric. How about you? What's your assessment? Well, that's interesting. I know Mazenov. I haven't seen his piece. I haven't seen him in years. I'll have to read that. But actually, I wanted to, just t- I wanted to use this opportunity to talk about the dart because it is, the, you know, the issue of the moment. This, this earthquake, devastating earthquake. Uh, the, the disaster assistance response team is about 25 years old now. Mm-hmm. It's a force. It's led group that has a lot of capability designed specifically for these kinds of operations. Right. And the, and the DART has been deployed seven times in the last 25 years, twice under the Kretchen government, twice under the Martin government, which was only in office for two years, and three times under the Harper government. It's never been deployed under the, under the Trudeau government. And of those seven deployments, four of them were to deal with earthquakes, and one of them, actually, back in 1999, was to deal with an earthquake in Haiti. We have to ask ourselves, what's going on here? Why aren't they stepping up with that capability, which has all kinds of capability directly relevant to an earthquake? It's got engineering capability. Sure. It's got primary field hospital or medical support capability. It's got water purification capability. And it's been deployed successfully seven times in the last 25 years. And from what I can, from what I gather, they're doing some kind of an assessment on the ground over there now. Mm-hmm. We'll see whether it leads to a recommendation, but to me, it looks like there's a lot of dithering going on and hand wringing going on in Ottawa. Indeed, and of course, at the same time, there is the Burnaby Urban Rescue Team that is over there on right. the ground doing work and, and, in fact, rescuing people. Pretty dramatic stuff yesterday, Eugene. Now, I'm going to Mr. Mezenov, General Mezenov's piece in the Post this morning. He says the whole point of the DART is that it's ready to deploy. Now, within 48 hours, the 200-person team could be en route. Instead, as you just said, 
The tap dancing and the hand wringing continues, and once again, Canada fails. Why? And he goes on to say, in truth, the Canadian Armed Forces have very little capability to help, and explains all of that sort of thing. We are, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, 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 dealing with a government that has essentially ignored the military for seven years consecutively. Well, they, they, they would argue that they haven't, and they have put more money in, uh, significantly more money in, and they unveiled a new defense policy about five and a half years ago now. But money's only part of the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reports coming out from, even from the chief of defense staff, suggest that the numbers of personnel are way down to levels that are at historic lows and are crippling their capability. So that's that's probably there's a lot of truth to that i think if the dart is incapable of deploying though and this is a relatively small unit that really does speak volumes about uh about how bad the situation has got and i, I don't know if that's the case mason would know better than me but on paper we have this capability and <laughs> and this seems to be a textbook case of where you would deploy it and we're not deploying it for some reason and there is a lot of hand-wringing that goes on when these these situations arise. I was myself involved in one many years ago when you might remember the tsunami struck uh, a Che province sure. in Indonesia. I was, working, sure. I was working in national defense at the time, and there was a lot of hand-wringing going on inside our government trying to figure out whether to deploy the DART and back and forth among officials. But in the end, we did deploy it into the region. So maybe that's where this will end up, but I, I agree with Mason that the response is very slow. In these situations, you've got to be rapid. So let's, that's one example uh, of the question that you pose at the top of your article, Eugenia. Is Canada back on the world stage or irrelevant? And uh, I, I would think that in other, on other files, for example, energy, we've seen both the leaders of Japan and Germany approach us for assistance as allies, allegedly dependable allies, and, and been rejected flat out and given some kind of hydrogen lecture and sent packing. Uh, that uh, that doesn't sound like a, a country that's back on the world stage. What do you think? On the big issues of today and of the last number of years, we're not leading at all. I mean, we're marginal. We make symbolic gestures, incremental contributions to these things. We're not at all leaders. We haven't been leaders, arguably, for a long time, but I think our um, decline internationally over the last seven or eight years has been quite precipitous. Um, and you see it in all kinds of examples, some of which I run through in that article, you know, the failure to get on the United Nations Security Council second time in a row, mm-hmm. despite a fairly aggressive a gather and what the government thought was a sophisticated campaign. And they were convinced they were going to get on it. And they came third to mm-hmm. Ireland and, uh, and um, Norway. Uh, that was one example. Then there's, you know, they were completely left out of this agreement between three of our closest allies, U.S., U.K., and Australia on what's called AUKUS. Right. It's emerging as a major international security agreement for the Indo-Pacific. And as you know, you're on the West Coast. We're an Indo-Pacific country, and the government has unveiled an Indo-Pacific strategy, what right. they call a strategy in November. They want to be, at least rhetorically, major players in the world were doing almost nothing over there, especially on the defense and security dimension, which is arguably right now the central dimension of, of the Indo-Pacific. That's what AUKUS is all about. Right. 
So, you know, we show up at international meetings. We're good at that. Uh, we're good at, you know, the cocktail circuit and moralizing and, you know, our a certain degree of sanctimony comes out of Canadian leaders internationally. But when it comes to actually doing things, stepping up, this latest example we discussed in, in the earthquake zone is that we're, 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 you know, incremental at best if absent, if not absent. Well, let's talk about another. And it's noticed by our allies. It's noticed. I mean, I mean, Canadians may not notice it. This is, this is my frustration. Mm-hmm. But our but other countries do notice it. I think Canadians get caught up in sort of a mythology and nostalgia about Canada's role in the world, and they hear things from people like Trudeau and Freeland and Anand and Jolie that suggest we're leaders when in fact we're not. And that was the main purpose of me trying to write it, writing this piece to point out the reality versus the rhetoric. Well, let's talk about tanks in Ukraine, uh, Eugene, as a final example point that you make in your article. It, a mighty struggle has taken place. And by gosh, we're going to cough up four tanks that are in, at best, questionable condition. Yeah, and I'm not certain of the condition. What, what we know is, because the government said so, there's 82 Leopard 2 tanks. They're not that old. Most of them were purchased about 10 years ago, mm-hmm. 12 years ago, during during Canada's involvement in Afghanistan. So they're not that old. So I'm surprised that they're in such bad shape if that is, in fact, the case. I'm not sure that's entirely the full story, though. Okay. Uh, I just don't think the Army wants to give, up, give them up because they're afraid they're not going to get them back. I think that's a bigger part of the story. But when somebody as credible as Rick Hillier, the former chief of defense staff and armored corps commander and former chief of the land staff, comes out and says we should be donating 50 of them, and he would know better than most what, what the capability is, uh, what the state of the capability is, and what we, we can spare, mm-hmm. yeah, I think you have to take that seriously. Four is trivial. I mean, four is symbolic. It almost begs the question, why bother? Exactly. Like something else then. I mean, I think four is trivial. Uh, it's embarrassing. And as I pointed out in that article, of the about 12 NATO states that are contributing tanks, that main battle tanks to Ukraine, we hold the distinction of contributing the fewest number along with Portugal. So th- that's where we stand on that issue in the, uh, in the pecking order. We are approaching uh, an election, at least uh, by law, um, in about a year's time. And there's still some speculation that could occur as early as this fall, a little ahead of schedule, or at least the legal requirements. Is our foreign profile, our our global profile, our, our place on the world stage going to be an election issue whenever that may roll around, Professor Lang, are Canadians concerned about this or are we sort of still taking the word of the the leadership and not paying enough attention to the file, period? In my experience and from what I know, international affairs rarely feature prominently in Canadian elections. So I don't think it will the election will turn on any of these issues. I don't think they're big issues. In the grand scheme of things, if you look at most polls that rate um, rank issues of importance for Canadians, international relations, anything to do with it ranks near the bottom, and that's been the case for at least 30 years. So I don't think it will be a big election issue. We are a very domestically focused country. <laughs> I think this is one of the great Canadian conceits. We think of ourselves as global citizens. Right. And, glo- and global leaders and playing all these big roles around the world. And we're just not. I mean, I hate to say it, but we're just we're just not. I mean, we're very domestically focused. 
And the politicians respond to that. They don't try to lead people out of that mindset. They reinforce it with this rhetoric, which is what I'm trying to talk about uh, in this little article. You know, So it reinforces the view that we're, we're doing lots. Don't worry about that. Let's worry about the things that we care about at home. Hmm. And well, I think those are the issues that the election will turn on. If they turn on issues at all, they may just turn on personalities, as they often do, or you're just tired of these guys, get rid of them, try somebody else. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very worthwhile effort uh, uh, that you've uh, put together with this uh, this article at theconversation.com. I commend it to my listeners, Professor Lang, and I thank you for your time in fleshing it out for us on the radio this morning. It's important, and I, I hope that more of us are being a little more conscious of who we are uh, relative to as we are seen by the rest of the world. Thanks, Eugene. We appreciate this very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a good day. According to our next guest, there's been a lot of talk lately about child care and the federal liberals' promise to bring down prices. And according to our guest and her colleagues at CARDIS, the, th- the conservative think tank in Ontario, the liberal daycare plan leaves out families who need it the most. Renza Nauda is the economic policy research lead at CARDIS. Joining us now, Renza, good morning and thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks very much for having me on your show. It's well, great to be here. It's good to have you with us. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the working class, because that's that's the key here. And, and the, the Trudeau government, since the, its first election in 2015, has at least paid a great deal of lip service to the working class and do so again in their plans for daycare. But they're leaving a lot, in fact, most of the working class out, according to your homework. Tell us, first of all, about the working class as you define it and how the liberals are missing the target. Yeah, thanks for that, uh, Sterling. I think you've set it up really well. The uh, the work. So we published a report recently that that looked exactly at at who is the working class because, as you point out, politicians are starting to talk about the working class more and more. And as as you know, when politicians uh, t- talk about this stuff, sometimes it really helps to to to, to set a definition of what that actually means. Um, so. The stereotype of the working class uh, that that we have is is that it's composed mainly of white middle-aged men working in in, in the manufacturing sector in Ontario, for example. Mm-hmm. But what our report found is that it's as likely to be uh, a female recently immigrated worker who's working in the services sector. Um, and uh, the key thing to understand with that is that the services sector, it, these, these are people who, who don't typically work nine to five jobs. Right. They're servers in restaurants. They're grocery store clerks. They're working when other people are eating or when other people are running errands in the evening or on the weekends. They're also, by the way, more likely to hold multiple multiple jobs, such as running Uber or, or, or other things like that. Mm-hmm. The problem with the federal government's child care program is that it doesn't really fit with those kinds of lives. Uh, they, they typically subsidize uh, your, your standard licensed child care that does run nine to five. Uh, but there are all sorts of other child care arrangements out there that that might fit these these working class lives a little bit better, but that they aren't being supported by the federal government. Right. Now, here in B.C., we have the Affordable Child Care Benefit. This is a provincial program that allows uh, families to apply for, um, uh, with, below a certain income threshold, of course, to apply for uh, benefits that will uh, allow them to uh, at least afford, uh, to come closer to affording daycare. Uh, and and what, is, what is the federal plan? Is it, does it reflect what we're doing already here in B.C.? 
so no, no, it doesn't. The, the the federal government is is focusing on on standard licensed care. I will say that the that BC's affordable child care benefit it at least recognizes that that families have different child care needs depending on their situation. Sure. Although it still do, although it still does treat families unequally depending on their child care choices. Uh, so working class families uh, who need alternative child care might not be getting as good a deal. But I will say at least that it does recognize that, that, that different families have different needs. Uh, and the federal government, yeah, it's, 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 it's applying a much more one-size-fits-all um, uh, uh, program around, around diverse family needs. So then what's the solution? Is it simply to step back and take a look at the impact of these plans before they're actually implemented and realize that that there are targets that were hoped to have been hit that are nowhere close to being hit? I think that's part of it. I think I think oh, stepping back and looking at a program to, and and looking at, at whether or not it actually hits the targets is is a good first step. I do think, though, that there are proactive things that governments can do. We, I think, I think governments first and foremost need to recognize that there is an affordability crisis, sure. and the childcare is part of that. I mean, everybody's feeling the pinch uh, on 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 the grocery bill and the childcare bill. Everyone's feeling that, but there's also something else that needs to be part of these childcare programs, and that's flexibility. And and I believe, and Cardis believes that the best way to achieve both of those things is to give money directly to parents. That would, you know, help with their with their bottom line at the end of every month, but it would also put their put the power into their hands to decide what kind of child care they need. Because there's all sorts of kinds of child care. There's your standard center based care, but some people also rely on grandparents. Sure they do. Rely yeah. on neighbors. Mm-hmm. And some people have someone come into the home for a couple hours a day. Why why should anybody be penalized because they have chosen a certain kind of child care over another? It should be we should we should be we should be fitting the federal and provincial programs around families rather than the other way around. I recall uh, the Harper government taking a run at this, but they went at it sort of in reverse. They talked about tax credits uh, instead of uh, money up front, cash to offset real expenses. They talked about, well, you make the expenses, but you can declare said expenses on your tax return and we'll give you uh, we'll give you the rebate at that point. That's uh, I mean, it was an attempt. It kind of missed the mark, though, don't you think? I think I think that uh, I think that there were some some benefits to that bill, and that's and that's that it did provide uh, a, a, an amount of money based on people's based on based on people's needs rather right. than the kind of childcare that they were after. And I think I think that we can learn from that, and I think that there's you know we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. I think that's that's the that's the key thing here, and and uh, and there are certain insights from 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 that experience that I think can be applied here, and that's. And that's that. Uh, it's and that's that flexibility is a really key part of, of the childcare solution. This is uh, intended to be a centerpiece of liberal programming and ideally a major plank in the platform they'll run on in the next election. Do you think they're going to have this implemented, Renza, in time to say, well, look what we're doing here. I mean, just take a look at this. Yeah, great question. Um, so we, my colleagues, uh, Peter John Mitchell and Andrew Rosick at Cardis, uh, a couple years ago, uh, uh, put out a, a report that that considered uh, the, the the subsidized childcare model that the federal government was considering at the time, and their report showed that the that if if the federal government wanted to implement the kind of program that was being called for by by the people asking for this program, 
the, the costs were going to spiral out of control. Uh, and, and what we've seen in, in the implementation of it is that the federal government is not going to be able to provide the kind of money that, to, to implement the kind, that kind of program. So one of a few things is going to happen. Either quality of the care is going to go down mm-hmm. uh, or taxes are going to go through the roof and we're going to pay for it one way or another, or the provinces are going to be left with the bill at the end of the day. Uh, and then provincial taxes are going to have to go up instead. So, you know, I, I think what that shows is, is that the whole program is pretty unsustainable. So are they going to be able to implement it? I don't think so. Uh, not, not, not to the degree that, that, that they're going to want to anyway. So, but again, I think that there's an alternative solution here, which is, that, uh, which is that they can take that money and give it to parents. They're the ones who are going to be able to find the most cost-effective ways that fit their lives, and therefore it's going to be a more efficient uh, use, of, use of funds if, if we give that money directly to parents. And I think that that achieves both the cost of living question, but it also achieves the importance of flexibility that we need to see in these programs. Interesting that the, you would talk about giving the money to parents. I see that perhaps as a, as a counterpunch from the opposition rather than the government, uh, which firmly believes they know better about how to live your life than you do. Well, you know, I don't. I don't think that uh, that there's that the solution to to every problem is going to be uh, a, a bureaucratic program. I think that I think that. Uh, that the that there are other ways and, and and one of those ways can be can be giving money directly to parents politicians are also going to fight about this of course mm-hmm. we'll get into that but uh, but you know i i think that we would welcome any party uh, from either side of the aisle to pick this up uh, as an idea and and run with it well, it's interesting, and I suspect it's going to be very much front and center as the election uh, warms up and we get down to campaigning and programs and specifics. Uh, thanks very much, Renzo. We appreciate your uh, joining us this morning to flesh this one out for us. And, friends, it's in the National Post. Liberal daycare plan leaves out families who need it the most. Co-authored by our guest, Renzo Nauda. Thanks very much for this. Thanks, Sterling. Coming up later this year in December, the women of the Salty Science Team will tackle their biggest challenge yet, rowing 3,000 miles unsupported across the Atlantic Ocean. The overall goal, they say, is to support charities focused on marine conservation education. All of this at their very fun website, saltyscience.org. One of the salty scientists and rowers from that four-person team is Dr. Isabel Cote, distinguished SFU professor of marine ecology and conservation on the line with us this morning. Dr. Dr. Cote, Isabel, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Well, it's good of you to join us today. How long has salty science been in the works, Isabel? Uh, For about two and a half years now. We uh, started thinking about this crazy thing about two and a half years ago. And of course, with the big oceans conference having just wrapped up here in Vancouver in the last few days, the timing on this announcement is not coincidental, is it? No, not really. But we also made it coincide with uh, today, which is the International Day of uh, Girls and Women in Science. Ah, so you're, you're, you're trying to provide inspiration on quite a number of fronts to say nothing of, oh, I don't know, rowing across the Atlantic Ocean. What an incredible target to, to, to shoot at. How on earth did you manage to even arrive at an attempt? Yeah, one of our teammates was actually at the finish line a couple of years ago. 
And she got really inspired and thought, uh, I'm going to get a team together to do this. So that's how it all started. And as it happened, she was a marine biologist. She got together <clears throat> myself and two other marine biologists. And, and the cause that unites us all, obviously, is, is the ocean and ocean protection. And so it all basically went from there. And we figured, you know, go big or go home. Yeah, right. So tell, <laughs> talk to us about how big. What size boat would you be taking? So we have the boat already. She's called Emma, and she's a specially designed rowboat, uh, 28 feet long. And there's, if you can imagine, there's sort of a, a cockpit in the bow and a cockpit, cockpit in the stern, stern, and those are sort of sleeping cabins, if you want, although they, they hardly accommodate more than one person. Mm-hmm. And then it's wide open between the two, and there's uh, three stations for uh, three people to row at once. Ah, okay, so the, the, the most you're going to be able to muster is three-person power at any one given time. That's right. Although most of the time it's going to be two people on the oars because we're going to be rowing on a two hours on, two hours off cycle, 24 hours a day until we get basically from the Canary Islands off the coast of North Africa to Antigua in the Caribbean. So how long do you estimate that's going to take you? We kind of hope between 45 and 55 days. It kind of depends on conditions. Right, of course. And again, it's, I, I, well, I'm looking at saltyscience.org, and it's a great website, by the way, Isabel. Congratulations you. to your webmaster. It's just, it's a buffalo website. It's lots of fun and very, very energetic visually. And I'm looking at the boat. And frankly, it looks a little, well, light uh, for the assignment of crossing the Atlantic <laughs> blinking ocean. This is pretty lightweight stuff, Isabel. Yeah, it's, it is going to be laden with everything that we need. So we have to bring all of our food for the entire crossing sure. plus a few extra days, just in case it takes longer than expected. Um, <clears throat> and we have so much equipment on there. We have to be able to fix anything that goes wrong with the electronics. We have to be able to replace anything that breaks, like the, the oars and the rudder. And we have a whole lot of safety equipment Um so, uh, yeah, it's, it's um, a little bit deceiving, I think, how much space there is on that boat. Indeed, and, and it's open, as you've already said. There's, a kind of, there's a, 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 some kind of cabin-type arrangement at both ends of the boat, bow and stern. Right. But in the middle, the rowing area is actually open. Do you have a cover that, under really harsh conditions, you can pull over yourselves? No, we don't, uh, because that would impair the writing capability of this boat. So if we ever encounter really big waves and the boat flips over, mm-hmm. it's designed to write in itself as long as nothing impedes that motion. So, uh, yeah, we're open to the elements. I see. So uh, one would also consider then, as you sit in your rowing position uh, and on pretty heavy conditions in the Atlantic, uh, I've, I'm kind of familiar with the Atlantic. It can be pretty nasty. Um, and so it, are you wearing a seat belt of some kind, too? Yeah, we'll be tethered to the boat at all times uh, when we're outside of the cabins. So that's, that's a, a regulation of the race. So we'll, we can never be separated 
from the boat. Right. Now, this is also a, a fundraising event because if you go to website, you can find out about the cause, the crew, the race, and there's also a donate section. So where, uh, how does one go about donating uh, and what is the, mon- the donation based on? Uh, miles accomplished or just a, a, a blank check to the, to the organization and congratulations, here's my 500 bucks or whatever. How are you, how are you proposing to raise money? There's there's lots of ways. So I'll just say a, a quick something about our causes. So okay. we're, we're raising money for three charities that uh, exemplify the ideal types of actions that can be taken to um, help the ocean. So one charity, uh, Shellback Expeditions, empowers coastal communities to make evidence-based uh, management decisions. So basically pairs up newly trained research divers with uh, communities in the Eastern Caribbean that don't have the person power to collect data underwater. So that's one. Okay. And another charity is called Green Wave, um, and they support sustainable food production. So they go around the world and train people in coastal communities to set up um, integrated aquaculture. So seaweed farming compare, uh, combined with, for example, sea cucumber farming and bivalve farming and so on. And then finally, the one that's really closest to my heart is the Banfield Marine Science Center on the uh, east coast or the west coast of Vancouver Island. Oh, right. Sure. Okay. And there we're trying to set up a, a scholarship fund that's going to support diversity and access to opportunities in marine science. So those three, are, those are the prime charities that uh, the, this uh, salty science effort across the Atlantic, from the Canaries to the Caribbean, you're going to be raising money for these three charities. I'm assuming the distribution will be fairly equal between the three? Yeah, equal. And people can go to our website to donate. Uh, you can either sponsor a mile uh, or you can give, you know, whatever amount you can. Uh, if you're part of a corporation, we have a corporation package ah. and we offer uh, corporations, depending on their level of funding, logos of different sizes on our boat or on our oars. Um, and if people want to donate and get a Canadian tax receipt, uh, you can go to Canada Helps and look at the Banfield Marine Sciences Centre. And we are a campaign under uh, the Banfield Center. Um, so if people go through the Canada Helps website, then they can get the tax receipt um, for Canada. Well, this is not going to happen until December. Are you in uh, training already? We've been in training for about uh, 18 months. And uh, the, we've had two training camps. So the boat is in Florida right now. and uh, But we are spread across four time zones. So... Well, we got together in January, uh, did a lot of rowing, including our first overnight row, which was absolutely incredible. And then this summer, we're getting together June, July, August, and we're just going to put in the miles on the boat. Well, we'll talk to you over the summer then, Isabel, as you get ready for the big push in December. Uh, congratulations already, and uh, the best of luck to you. We'll, we'll talk again before you push off. Absolutely. Thank you so much.